So tonight I'd like to start with a couple of lines from another poem by John O'Donohoe. It's a poem that's called for a new beginning and it seems quite appropriate for the end of a retreat as you come to the beginning of actually the most important part of the retreat, I think, which is when you go home. And he says, though your destination is not yet clear, you can trust the promise of this opening. Unfurl yourself into the grace of beginning that is one with your life's desire. Awaken your spirit to adventure. Hold nothing back. Learn to find ease in risk. Soon you will be home in a new rhythm for your soul senses the world that awaits you. So as we come to the end of this week of practice, probably there are some questions in your heart and your mind. How do we keep our hearts open to ourselves and others? I don't know that we've answered it this week. Maybe we've just made more questions. How can we trust any new beginnings that have perhaps come here at the retreat? And if there has been something, is it really different? Will it make a change when you go home? You know? So we've talked in here a lot about suffering. We've talked about its causes and its nature and its ending. And last night, Gil gave us that wonderful teaching about the foundations of wisdom and truth and generosity or relinquishment and peace. And tonight I want to talk a little bit more about suffering. You're probably tired of hearing about suffering, but you know, it is what it is. And also a bit, as I talk about suffering, some about the stories that we create that become so very strong in our hearts and minds and we live inside of these stories. We look out through the windows of the stories. And often those stories are not so very helpful. They're not, not even necessarily true. And so we're also really looking at what might wisdom and truth really look like. So I want to weave a bit of a story through this whole thing. So many years ago now, my husband Russell and I were sitting in the office of our therapist. And we'd been working with this man for quite a while, learning ways to keep our marriage healthy and on track. And um, we both loved him a lot. And there came a moment, there was a pause in the session, and he leaned forward and he looked at Russell and he said, isn't there something you need to tell Mary? Of course, one of those moments, right? (laughs) And so Russell took a deep breath and he looked at me and he said, I want to go to Burning Man. Well, actually, what was true is I didn't know what Burning Man was. (laughs) So he began to tell me what it might involve. 
And um, I was undone. I was shocked and I was scared. And the more he told me, the more scared I got. And the more scared I got and the more stories I created, the more I got stuck, really, really stuck. So this was definitely big time suffering. Lots of dukkha. It was not okay with me. I was very attached to things being different. And of course, I wasn't really noticing that I was stuck or that it was dukkha. I was just upset. So we've all known these places, right? You've all had them in your own lives and in your own relationships. And here this week, as we've all talked with you, we've heard so many stories of broken hearts and illness and struggles of various sorts in the work and life world and losses. And we've all found our experience to have suffering in it, lots of dukkha, lots of the unsatisfactoriness that we create in our own heart and mind. Quite a while ago, a little bit of another story, I was facing some significant difficulties in the community in Santa Cruz that I was the guiding teacher of for quite some time. And um, I had to go to a meeting where there were a lot of people who were going to be really angry with me. And my friend Ajahn Amaro was advising me on a lot of things around that particular situation. And so I called him up that afternoon and we talked about it a bit and I heard what he had to say and then towards the end of the conversation I said, Bhante, I said, is there any last word of advice that you have for me? And there was this pause. And then he said, yes. He said, don't suffer. <laughs> and I said, thank you very much and hung up the phone. And then I thought, that's all very well for him to say. You know, he doesn't have to go to the meeting. He's at the monastery up there in Ukiah. I have to go to the meeting. How, how do we do that? How do we not suffer? You know, I could, we could all say that to all of you, you know. Tomorrow we'll say goodbye, don't suffer. (laughs) So how do we move from that tight, constricted place of suffering and unhappiness when the mind and the heart really shut down to the space and expansiveness of wise view? So it's interesting to know that in all the great creation myths of the world. They all begin with a time of chaos and confusion and darkness and lostness before anything happens. That's where it starts. That's where it starts. And I imagine if we had time to share our journeys and to talk about where we had started, we would find that many of our journeys begin in the same way, with chaos and lostness. And we wander through the darkness and we're trying to figure out, 
You know, how do we make sense of this difficulty? How do we make sense of the suffering? How do we make sense of the human condition? We know, as we mentioned in here, that when the Buddha began to look around after being raised in this very protected way, he met those four heavenly messengers. And we know that three of those were old age, sickness, and death. They were key to his awakening. We know that suffering often cycles around and around and around, and that we create the same difficult situations, the same difficult relationship, the same difficult job, over and over and over again. You know, we begin with some kind of ignorance where we don't see clearly and we end with suffering. This is actually this teaching of cycles, some of you know this, is called the the cycle of dependent origination. Fortunately, there are also teachings that about the steps that lead to awakening and um, in one of them, it's called transcendental dependent origination, one of the critical points early in the description is the point at which we are willing to look at and to acknowledge our suffering. And this is where we begin to open into faith, into moving into following some kind of path. So, you know, you can think of things like those of you who are in 12-step programs, you know, we talk a lot in 12-step programs about hitting bottom. Now that place where you just can't go any farther down, whatever your own bottom is, it varies from person to person. And that kind of has to happen before you can wake up. Or you read, um, for example, if you read in Noah Levine's book, uh, his book called Dharma Punks, wonderful book about the journey of a young man, and he woke up in juvenile hall. You know, there he was, sitting there in jail. And he remembered some very simple instructions that his father, who's also a teacher, had given him on how to practice. And, you know, what else are you going to do in a cell in juvenile hall? So he tried it out and it seemed to help. And one thing has led to another. Now he's a Dharma teacher too. So when we... When we hit this place, when we hit this darkness, when we're finally willing to look at it, that's where we begin to look for a teacher, listen to a talk, go to a retreat, whatever. Wendell Berry says, to go in the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark. Go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. It's so important to remember that we have to go into the darkness, whatever your darkness is. You know, we're so much more like Nasruddin, you know Nasruddin, that great Sufi saint and sage and fool. And, you know, one day Nasruddin was found by his neighbor and he was out under the streetlight and he was looking around and looking around and looking around. His friend said, what are you looking for? Can I help you? And Nasruddin said, well, 
I'm trying to find my car keys, I've lost them. And his friend said, well, where did you lose them? Where do you think you last had them? And he said, oh, back in the backyard, you know, over there by the bushes. And his friend said, but you're out here under the streetlight. What are you doing out here? And he said, well, there's more light out here. <laughs> and we're, we're just like that, aren't we? We don't want to go back there in the dark, in the bushes to look for, even if we know it's there, even if we know it's there, the light somehow seems much easier. And so when we begin to look in the dark, when we push against the stream of our old habits of staying in the light, there's a profound turning that begins to happen. And this is the place of coming to terms with our suffering. And this place is in fact a very sacred place. A very sacred place. It's the first step on the path that can lead to liberation. So I'm hoping, as I was writing this this afternoon, I was thinking at this point, maybe a few of you are going, yippee, I did it, you know, I looked at my suffering for a week, I'm on my way. Which is true, you know, we're all on our way, we've all been willing to take a look. Could you bring us a little more light? It's getting too, it's getting too dark. <laughs> I need to look in the light a little bit more, thank you. <laughs> so... Early on in my own particular working, I came across a teaching from completely another tradition. It's a teaching from the Asclepian healing mysteries. So these were ancient Greek healing mysteries. And this teaching says this. It says, God sends the wound. God is the wound. God is wounded and God heals the wound. It's an amazing teaching. No matter where you are with the God word, it doesn't matter too much. Just really seeing what that is saying about woundedness and the sacredness of it. So when we come to this place of woundedness, we find that there's a morass of stories usually, all the memories, all the things that have happened, And um, we see how much we are in those stories, how caught this, you know, this happened and then it happened and then I did this. Three years ago, I went to my 50th high school reunion. It was the first reunion that I had attended. So I hadn't seen these people, most of them, for 50 years. And the few people that I had seen, it was maybe like 45 years. So it was a long, long time. And you know, you gear up to go to something like that and there's a place where all of a sudden I was 17 again, you know, thinking about all these different people. You get out your yearbooks and you look at the pictures and think, oh, you know, is that person going to be there? I hope this person's going to be there. All that kind of thing. Some of us, we had a little bit of conversation via email beforehand, but not much. You know, and the people who were the brains, that was, I was one of those. And the jocks, I certainly wasn't one of those, nor was I a cheerleader, but there was definitely a group of cheerleaders. And you know, the people in my high school actually had sororities and fraternities, which made life even more difficult. So I had all the old stories had begun to show themselves. And it was really interesting to see these people who 
didn't live the stories that we had for them. What do you know? You know, and some of the people who had been jocks and really lazy students and some of the cheerleaders had gone on to get doctoral degrees and had had fascinating lives and a fair amount of success, you know. And then there are the other people who were destined for great things, you know, in the yearbook. And they didn't have such great lives. Some of them, actually, some of them hadn't even survived to be there at the reunion. So we really, you know, discovered that we weren't our stories. We weren't, I didn't, wasn't finding the people that I expected to find. So to go back to my story, so Russell, my husband, did indeed go to Burning Man that year. And I spent, I don't know how long it was, eight days, being absolutely frantic. I knew I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he would find some naked babe, probably <laughs> painted blue all over or something like that, and then he would run off with her. Or maybe, you know, he would get caught in the party scene, even though he's not a party guy, I knew that, you know. And then he went back the next year. And year after year, I would continue to expect the worst. And every now and then he would say, you know, you really ought to, come and see for yourself. I always said, no, no. And every year, long about, probably right about now, maybe a little bit earlier, we'd start to argue about it. You know, was he going to go again this year? Please, please don't go. You know, can't you stay home this year? You know, even the year my father died, please stay home this year. Even though my father died in January and Burning Man is in August, you know. (laughs) Please won't you stay home. One year, The story I had was that I'd been gone a few days and I wasn't worrying so much about the blue babes at this point. But I thought, he's going to come home with magenta hair. (laughs) And then I thought, I cannot go to the supermarket with a man with magenta hair. I just can't do it. And then I would think, it's a story. I know it's, I, you know, I've done this practice for a while. I know it was a story. But it would come around again, and I would get upset again, and then I would say, no, no, it's a story. And this went round and round and round for days. Finally, the night came when he was driving home. He usually calls when he gets to the, you know, someplace this side of the Sierras. And the phone rings, and I pick it up, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to get this settled for once and for all. So we talk a little bit, and then I say, what color is your hair? And he said, magenta. (laughs) And I said, will it wash out? And he said, well, pretty soon. (laughs) I was so upset. It did wash out, actually. So, you know, I was locked into the story of who I was. I was quiet. I was introspective. I was not somebody who hung out with that sort of a crowd. I was too old for that sort of thing. I'm well-behaved. I'm relatively abstemious. I don't like large crowds and big parties, you know. I'm a spirit rock teacher, you know. I'm identified with silent meditation retreats. They are very different from Burning Man, as you may have noticed this week. 
But he's a stubborn man, still is, and the years went by and he continued to go. He actually created a wonderful service project at Burning Man, which works against sexual assault there at, on the playa. And every time he would come home, he was really, really happy to be home and happy to be with me. And in fact, he returned better. He was softer and more open and happier. Somewhere along the line, he even began to meditate a little bit. Had some fabulous photos and a lot of interesting stories. And then I learned that there was a group from Green Gulch, from the Zen Center, who had gone and created a cardboard zendo out there at Burning Man. I thought, well, that's interesting. Zen folks are going. And then I (laughs) met some Vipassana teachers who went. And then I discovered that I was teaching with two Burning Man wannabes, (laughs) Gil and John, who thought it would be just great if they could have the time to go to Burning Man. So, you know, a little bit, it's sort of like this, you know, with peeling your fingers away from the story. Gradually the grip on the story loosened. And I began to look at my situation and I discovered that I was afraid. And that I was making a choice to stay away out of fear. It wasn't in my comfort zone. It wasn't in my comfort zone. And somewhere I began to realize I couldn't stay away just because I was afraid. You know, I don't like that really. I had to see for myself. And I had to test the limitations of that story. So I stepped out of the story a bit and became a person who had a ticket to Burning Man. (laughs) And, you know, in honor of the magenta hair, I had to kind of join the club. So I added some color to my hair. And we loaded up the car, and off we went. And Burning Man became my teacher, a really ferocious teacher, who gave me... I think, an unanswerable koan. It's the nature of a koan to be unanswerable. In the Zen world, a koan is a teaching, a story, often a story that you can't quite figure with the rational mind, no matter how hard you try. The classic one that everybody knows is, what is the sound of one hand clapping? So, so Burning Man was wonderful and awful and scary and fun, and some of the hardest camping I've ever done, and I've done a lot, and it was exhausting, and it was delightful. Every day, early in the morning, I decided, this is the day I'm leaving, because <laughs> we had an escape clause built in. And then every day, it would get to be a little later in the morning, the sun would be up, the desert would be gorgeous, we would sit there sipping our coffee, and I would go, well, maybe I could stay one more day. And each time I thought I knew who I was or what I was doing, I really quickly found out that that wasn't true. And I certainly found out that whoever it was I thought I was when I went there, maybe that wasn't so. It was utterly confusing and utterly challenging. And fortunately, at some point, the thought went through, this is a koan, which actually kind of saved me. I thought, oh, I cannot figure this. I cannot figure it. I just have to be here and let it 
work me, the same way we invited you to let the retreat work you. And it did one more thing, because when I came home, the hair was still purple. And I entered the world, the supermarkets even, as a woman with purple hair, as it wasn't a temporary color, and discovered that it completely changed my interactions with people around me. Apparently, if you have purple hair, you are automatically friendly and interesting and available. Anyone can approach you and ask about it. I've had my photo taken in supermarkets. Please, can I take your picture? I want my mother to see it. I'm hoping she'll do it, you know. Some young sidewalk musicians in Santa Cruz thought that it would be fun if I could join their band, although I didn't, you know, I don't, they had no idea what my musical abilities were or weren't. Just so many amazing, heartwarming, interesting conversations that would begin. The best one was um, I had taught a retreat in the Philly area, and the retreat was over, so it was like tomorrow's going to be, and the people taught me, took me to the airport, and um, I was pretty happy. It had been a good retreat. I was kind of high. And I walked into the airport with my boarding pass and my suitcase. And I was going to go over to one of the kiosks. And this big, tall um, agent came toward me, black man, really tall. And he said, you don't have to go over there. You, know, you just take go over here to finish your check-in, get your bags checked. And then he walked, he walked towards me, and he was about as close to me as where that bell is, and he's looking down at me. And all of a sudden he got this big grin on his face, and he began to laugh. And I looked up at him, and I began to laugh. And I said, oh, it's the hair, isn't it? And then he threw his arms around me. And we had this amazing hug in the airport. This does not happen in the Philadelphia airport. It does not. Black men who work there do not hug little old ladies. It just doesn't happen. It's too bad. It would be better if it happened more. I was so high. It was like I flew home, I think, myself, you know, like this. It was, it was astounding. So I've kept it, valuing this new way of being in the world. Who am I? Who am I? Not the quiet, introverted self I once knew. Not the conventional identity of an older woman with white hair and wrinkles who's seen only as grandma. So I might get sent to the sidelines these days for being a little bit weird, but not simply because I'm old and kind of invisible, which happens all too much in our culture. Now it's true. I could get caught in this story. You know, pretty soon, somebody's going to have to say to me, you know, don't you think you could do something a little different? Aren't you caught in the purple hair story? Maybe I am, you know, it's something to look at. So remember the river poem from the beginning of the retreat, the one that says, I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. So it's an interesting thing to begin to be surprised by the unfolding of our own being. One of the core teachings 
about the nature of the human experience is that of the five aggregates. The five aggregates are form, feeling, that's the pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant thing, Vedana, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. That's what the human experience consists of, or it's one of the definitions of what it consists of. And you, I often think of them as they're like rocks that have happened to come together in a stream, you know, these five rocks. And because they're the way they are, a certain eddy happens in the stream. That's you, or me, or Gil. And the eddy holds together for a while, keeps happening, keeps happening, keeps happening. We create a sense of self around it. We wrap all the stories of our lives about who it is that we are around it. We call it me and mine. We create intentions and actions and we, of course, perpetuate cycles of suffering. But the eddy doesn't hold, does it? Sooner or later, the aggregates break apart. I'm 70 and a half these days. I'm very clear that my body isn't what it once was. It's deteriorating. It's dying on the vine, actually. I know that ahead of me, although I'm still hoping for a number of years, lies that complete loss of this identity, which is my own death. I know that I will not be me for forever, which is actually kind of a relief, I think. I don't know who or what I am. I don't know what happens next. I don't know, as our Zen friends say, what was my face? What is our face? What was your face before you were born? It's actually very interesting not to know. And that's what I want to talk some about now. Stephen Batchelor in one of his books describes a koan that was given to him, a wonderful koan and a really simple one. You can take it home with you. It is, what is this? What is this? Go out, look at things, look at the world. What is this? Look at your hand. What is this? So one of the ways One of the things that has inspired me in this not knowing practice is the study of astronomy. I mentioned, I think, earlier in here that that's been my old age passion and really beginning to learn about the vastness of the cosmos and the billions, billions of galaxies, billions, and billions, more billions of stars and all of the strangeness that time and space is. Every time they come up with something new, it just gets stranger and weirder. One of my favorite practices, and I completely recommend it to all of you, is when I go online every day, before I do anything else, I go to the astronomy picture of the day. And if you don't know that website, Just Google astronomy picture of the day and you will find it. And every day there's this astounding picture. Once in a while it's kind of ordinary, but mostly they're 
you know, it's, it's a space shuttle or this or that. But mostly, it's these amazing pictures of the stars. And in the presence of all that bigness, it's so clear that we know so little. And we've invented so many stories. So thinking of stars, how many of us? You look up at the sky, and what do you see? You see the Big Dipper, right? Is there a Big Dipper? No. Those stars aren't even close together. They're um, way far apart. You know? But we connected the dots and said, it's a bear, or it's a dipper, or it's the plow, you know, depending on which culture you came from. And then we have this notion that it's, 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 a, it's a real thing. And if you got into your trusty little spaceship and cruised up there, you'd find the Big Dipper. But you won't, you know, you won't at all. You'd just find mostly space, actually. Or the other one that I love to teach about, to sort of demonstrate how we do this, is something that's called the MacArthur Map of the World. So I walked into the Exploratorium many years ago now, and there was a room with maps on the wall. And I looked at this one map and I thought, what? It's upside down. So the MacArthur Map of the World has Antarctica at the top. And then it has, you know, Australia and New Zealand and the tips of Africa and the tip of South America, and then sort of in the middle you have Mexico and Central America. They always manage to be in the middle. And then, you know, you have Europe and the United States, and then down at the bottom is the North Pole. And it was really interesting because, you know what? The North Pole is not on top. There is no top. There is no top. It's just a convention. It's a way that we have looked at the world. They love the MacArthur map of the world in New Zealand. (laughs) I found it on tea towels in New Zealand. Because imagine what it is. I really started to think about, what does it do to you to always be at the bottom of the map? You know, because we're a little snooty about it. We are. Somehow it's better to be up here in the northern hemisphere, not down there in the southern hemisphere. It could just as easily be on its side. You could have the North Pole here and the South Pole here, and it's spinning around this way. Your map could be like that. Why not? You know? When we do those things, it really begins to loosen up the hold that our mind has on, we know how it is. Or you can go the other way and consider the human microbiome. You are an entire universe of bacteria and other microorganisms. They are living, breeding, and dying on you and in you and through you, calling themselves you. And in fact, in the Scientific American recently, it said, you are more bacteria than you are you. (laughs) There's billions of those little guys in there. And that's what you, what this mostly is. What? How can that possibly be true? Well, we look at anything physical and we know that it's made up of particles, the tiniest particles, moving and dancing and shifting about, going in and out of existence even. And that when 
we look at some of those images of the smallest things, they look remarkably like the images of the very, very early time right after the beginning of the cosmos. Powers of ten, ten powers of ten down takes you to the smallest particles, ten powers of ten ten down from the human size, and ten powers of ten higher, and you are at the biggest, farthest back point in the universe that we've got. It's pretty interesting. We're in the middle, actually. So what's going on? What is this? What is this? What's going on here? We so want answers. We so want to connect the dots and say, this is how it is. We've sat here together in silence for a week. We've sat with suffering. We've sat with joy. We've sat with doubt. We've sat with faith as it comes up. We sit, and we sit, and we sit, and we sit, and we sit. And gradually, if you keep on practicing, we begin to see things a little differently. The end of the Metta Sutta, there's a wonderful verse which was quite puzzling to me for quite a while. It says, By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. And what has become key to me in that ending is the phrase, by not holding to fixed views. That's what we need not to do. When we let go of our fixed views, this is in the Metta Sutta, remember, when we let go of our fixed views, the heart opens. Opening the heart comes from not holding fixed views, not holding fixed views opens the heart. This is one of the things that can bring us to the ending of suffering when we allow ourselves to be open to this place where we can ask questions like, what is this? And who am I? And what is this life business that we're in? There's a couple of readings that I often do on retreats, um, well, in any other situation this time. But one of them says at the end, when the mind is still, the floor where I sit is endless space. Some of you might have known that this time a little bit, that place where it's space. Or in another one, it says, my heart is not asleep, it is awake wide awake, its eyes are opened wide, watching distant signals, listening on the rim of the vast silence. Things begin to be, and we experience them in a somewhat different way. So in this amazing cosmos, which is so vast and so old and so beyond our ability to comprehend it. It's 
it's interesting and mysterious and seems a little unusual, actually, to be in this human condition. And certainly in many of the world's myths, it's considered to be sacred or um, we at least can be open to the sacred. And what we have that allows us to be different is aware presence, aware presence. And so there's a very interesting power that comes with sitting in the present moment. The present moment itself is really strange if you start giving your attention to it. Can you find it? You know, the minute, the minute you notice anything, it's gone, right? By the time your brain registers it, it's not that that particular moment, it's the next moment. It's not findable, it's enormous, it's timeless. It's very strange. So we, but we practice trying to be there, wherever there is, and with our awareness. Ajahn Sumedho likes to say, now is the knowing. Have you ever noticed you can't know anything but in any place except now? You know, it's never anything but now. Knowing is always now. There's another teaching from another lineage that said God is the being without tense. So in this practice, the Buddha over and over again brings us to the aware presence in each moment. The instructions are so simple. They're amazingly simple. Give your attention to breath and to body, to the flavor of your experience. Try to stay present. Come back when you wander off. Notice the mind. It has lots of interesting states and it does some pretty weird things. Notice some things that are true. Notice that how impermanent everything is and notice what you're learning about suffering and notice that things aren't as solid as we thought they might be and notice what's helping with waking up and notice what keeps us from waking up. And the Buddha encourages us to open our hearts and to develop friendliness and goodwill towards all beings. It's not just mental exercise. You're not here just stretching your brain. The people who gathered around the Buddha and who practiced with him and went deeply into their practice, and millions of people since then, have experienced great release, great release, awakening, deep understanding of their own nature. They've come to that place of freedom that we've talked about, the place of no greed and no hatred and no delusion. And the Buddha, in one of the places that, for me, really underlines how important this aware presence is, said, um, when asked his identity right after his experience under the Bodhi tree, and somebody said, who are you? And he said, I am awake. He didn't say he was anything else. You know, the, the guy tried, you know, are you a magician, are you a deva, are you this? Finally the Buddha said, I am awake. He wasn't anything special, he was human. 
He was a human being. In the end, he was subject to illness and death. And it's a profound teaching that this being human is not a mistake. It's not something you have to get out of or beyond. It's more something that we awaken to. What is the nature of our awareness? What is the true nature of our being? What happens, what is it that happens when we wake up? We develop that clarity of vision. But it's tricky because every time we have an insight, what happens? We think we're there, right? Get excited, your meditation falls apart for a few minutes, you know. It's really an art to have an insight and and actually to continue meditating because now we know, now we have the answer at last. Recently there was a cartoon in the Shambhala Sun the father, you know, he's walking down the street with his little boy and his father, the father says to the little boy, in my day, we didn't have Google, we had unanswered questions. <laughs> you know, and, and isn't it true? It's so easy, you don't know something, what do you do? You Google it, you know. I don't know what would happen, have you ever Googled what is the true nature of Life. <laughs> be interesting to see what would come up. But it won't be an answer, that's for sure. You know, there are unanswered questions. There are. We don't see clearly. How could we? I have four inches of gray matter in here. It's not very much, really. You know, how could I possibly expect to understand the ultimate nature of the universe? One Zen teacher used to teach, don't know. Over and over again in his teachings, he'll say, don't know. Suzuki Roshi, right here in the Bay Area, talked about the importance of beginner's mind, that mind that doesn't have stories. You know, Donald Rothberg, when we were teaching here in March, one night said, remove the intention to know. So retreats are a great time to practice not knowing, to meet experience as though for the first time. The sound of the frogs. Now what? What? The taste of a banana. You know, the wind blowing across your face. Those turkeys, really. As Sylvia says, what was God thinking? (laughs) Those turkeys, really. So a while back I was sitting a solo retreat and it got quite a bit difficult. And um, I was trying to make my way from the beginning to the end of the Samyutta (laughs) Nikaya, which is a huge fat book of suttas, very dry and very misogynistic. And after a while, I just couldn't take it anymore. It was just so awful. (laughs) So I picked up, um, one at a time they're fine, you know, but I wasn't doing it the right way. People have laughed at me since when I've told them that that's what I was trying to do. So I picked up a book 
that was, again, about koan practice. I like koans a lot. And I came to one of the koans that's really the, one of the basic Zen koans. It's the story of the Emperor Wu. So in this story about the Emperor Wu, the emperor was around the 12th or 13th century in China. And um, he had really wanted to have a spiritual life. And he had sought and sought and sought to find someone who would teach him. But you know, when you're the emperor, it's really hard to find somebody who will be really straight with you because they're currying favor a lot of the time. And so he never could really get what he wanted. And one day, in his court, there appeared this very tall, blue-eyed barbarian. Was Bodhidharma, but the emperor didn't know that. And in fact, the emperor never knew that. And so the emperor thought, whoa, who's this? He could tell that this guy you know, had some energy, something was different, certainly looked different from all of the Chinese. And so he thought he'd try him out. So he said, wow. He said, I've built all these hospitals and these monasteries and temples. And so what about the merit? And Bodhidharma looked at him and said, no merit. Well, you know, you don't say that to the emperor after he's built hospitals and temples and all of that. So he was a little startled and he said, well, what about these vast volumes of teachings, you know, 80,000 volumes of Buddhist teachings? And Bodhidharma said, nothing special, vast emptiness. It was then that I knew, you know, it's like, ah, that's Samyutta, vast emptiness. <laughs> nothing special. And then, so the emperor was really caught and he looked at Bodhidharma and he said, who are you standing there? And Bodhidharma said, I haven't got a clue. (laughs) And the emperor was so undone that he kind of reeled and by the time he came to, opened his eyes again, Bodhidharma was gone. He never actually saw him again. But he went on, his life was changed. You could try it. Because that's what I did, actually, with a lot of the rest of my retreat. You can just sit there and ask yourself, who are you sitting there? Try it. And then answer, I haven't got a clue. I haven't got a clue. It's a wonderful practice, actually. Even if you don't believe it, you know, some voice over there is saying, yeah, I know who I am. But try it anyway. You know, experiment with the not knowing When we let go of all these concretized stories, all these convictions about who we are, this, you know, I am a person who, really dangerous line, I think, in the human psyche, that's when we can really begin to penetrate the mystery of being. What is this? What is this? In the end, it's all mystery. It is. But when it seems that when we let go of having to know who and what we are, where we're going, we actually begin to find that we're standing on firmer ground. Very interesting. We indeed suffer less. So one more story. I was in India 
I'd been at a meeting in Dharamsala and some of us had gone with Joanna Macy over to a village not far from there to, to be there for some Lama dances and there was, her teacher was there, a man whose name is Chojal Rinpoche. And Joanna was with us and so because she was, we actually had an opportunity, each of us, to meet with him. And I knew that Joanna thought very highly of him and I think very highly of Joanna, so that um, I really wanted to kind of, you know, get as much out of this interview as I could because maybe I'll, you know, I might not ever see this man again. I haven't since then. So we talked and visited. And at the end, I know we were coming to the end of the interview and I was just, I was trying to speak from the deepest place I could come up with and I said to him, I said, well, you know, there are times when all I want to do is bow before the mystery. And he thought about it. He got this big grin and he said, don't bow to the mystery. He said, be the mystery. Be the mystery. Great teaching. So, you know, if I could teach one thing, I would teach, be available to wake up. You know, wake up over and over again. Be available not to know. Be available to discover that you are something utterly different from what you thought you were. Maybe you could even be available to have purple hair, I don't know, you know. We don't arrive at an answer. We only wake up over and over and over again to our own mystery, to the mystery of the cosmos, to the mystery of being. And this, I think, is perhaps what is wise view. So I'd like to end with a poem, another poem, about mystery. It's from David Wagoner. It's called The Silence of the Stars. He says, When Lawrence Vanderpost one night in the Kalahari Desert told the Bushmen he couldn't hear the stars singing, they didn't believe him. They looked at him, half smiling. They examined his face to see whether he was joking or deceiving them. Then two of these small men who plant nothing, who have almost nothing to hunt, who live on almost nothing and with no one but themselves, led him away from the crackling thorn scrub fire and stood with him under the night sky and listened. One of them whispered, Do you not hear them now? And Vanderpost listened, not wanting to disbelieve, but had to answer, no. They walked him slowly, like a sick man, to the small dim circle of firelight and told him they were terribly sorry. And he felt even sorrier for himself and blamed his ancestors for their strange loss of hearing which was his loss now. On some clear nights, when nearby houses have turned off their televisions, when the traffic dwindles, when through streets are between sirens and the jets overhead or between crossings, 
when the wind is hanging fire in the fir trees and the long-eared owl in the neighboring grove between calls is regarding his own darkness. I look at the stars again as I first did to school myself in the names of constellations and remember my first sense of their terrible distance. I can still hear what I thought at the edge of silence were the inside jokes of my heartbeat, my arterial traffic, the sea above high sea of my inner ear, myself tunelessly humming, but now I know what they are. My fair share of the music of the spheres and clusters of ripening stars, of the songs from the throats of the old gods, still tending even tone-deaf creatures through their exiles in the desert. (coughs) I said the first night, we are literally stardust. We aren't separate. And what you hear within yourself is the singing of those stars and it's totally mysterious. So let's breathe together a minute. So thank you very much for listening and please enjoy your walking and the frog singing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.